This sermon is brought to you by Buford Road Baptist Church. The speaker today is Pastor Tony Cahoot. We're going to be talking about some deep subject matter today and uh, important doctrine. And so it's important that you pay attention uh, whenever we get to something that goes beyond a surface, so to speak, I worry because I know that there are some that are with me and some that just are not, and for various reasons. But I pray that today that you stay with us throughout the Word because uh, there are going to be some great explanations that I think that are going to be encouraging to you. Uh, but you should know these. You should know these truths because uh, they are not only scriptural, but uh, they, they help you in times of question or maybe even confusion. And keep in mind, the Word says that God is not the author of confusion. So we need to remember these important things. Today we're talking about the words of salvation. And it's the second time that Jesus spoke on the cross. This is in the sermon series, The Seven Sayings on the Cross. I'm going to read for you this morning, beginning in Luke chapter 23, and I want you to follow along with us. We're going to read verses 39 through 43. Now, I want you to look with me here in Luke's gospel, chapter 23, and I begin reading in verse number 39. The Bible says, And one of the male factors which were hanged railed on him, saying, if thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. Kind of reminds me of what Pontius Pilate said, I find no fault in him. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. And so pay attention this morning in the word because I believe we'll clarify some things, reassure you of some things, and examine some truths that perhaps you may not be uh, very familiar with. It does not matter how much we teach about this subject or how much we preach about it, how much we study the Bible. Listen carefully. I do not believe that it will ever be within our reach to adequately describe the agonies of the cross. While we know that the death of Christ was intensified with shame, the Bible tells us that he was stripped naked before the world. Think about it, the only begotten Son of God. But not only that, he experienced excruciating suffering. I want to give you a passage of scripture that I did not give you last Sunday, and it's Isaiah chapter 50, verse number six. I've made notation for you on the bulletin where you can go back and reference this again, but I want to read it today, and I want you to see it. They'll get it on the screen for you. So keep in mind, he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him, the scripture says, but he endured the shame and he endured the excruciating suffering. I gave you last Sunday the description of the cat of nine tails, but I want you to see this in Scripture. The Bible says this is now written 750 years before Jesus went to the cross. It's written by the prophet Isaiah. By the way, who also wrote, he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we're healed. Here in this passage, he writes in prophecy, he said, I gave my back to the smiters. Last Sunday, I talked about how they took the cat of nine tails and whipped the flesh off of the 
the back of the Lord Jesus. They filleted him open to the point where some of his vital organs were exposed. But here, not only does the word say, I gave my back to the smiters, but look at this, and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair, which means that not only did they whip the flesh off of the body of Jesus, but they grabbed his beard and began to pluck it from his face with their bare hands. And now Jesus is standing before them with his face and chin so marred. Now the word says, I hid not my face from shame and spitting. So they whipped him profusely on his back. They beat him beyond human recognition. Isaiah also said his visage was so marred that no man would know him. They pluck his beard from his face and then they begin to spit upon him. So I want you to think about this just for a moment. Now they're placing the crown of thorns upon him. They are mocking him with a purple robe. They're making him carry his cross in this condition down the Via Della Rosa. They nail his hands to the feet. They nail his feet to the cross, nail his hands to the cross. They nail his feet to the cross. And then the Bible says they shoved that cross in a hole, jarring his flesh and then the Bible says, on top of all of that, encompassed about with such a barbaric, vehement realm of anger, this was nothing but accusations of blasphemy, by the way. And so when you, when you think about all of the horrific things that they did to Jesus before he ever got to the cross... And then you combine that when he got to the cross. It brings us to this point where we're studying the seven sayings of the cross. And now I want to remind you, last Sunday was the first time when he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But here the second time, he spoke from the cross and it was in direct response to the dying thief. Keep that in mind. Now, if there was ever a picture-perfect illustration in the Bible about deathbed salvation, this is it. You say, Pastor, do you believe in deathbed salvation? I believe in deathbed salvation, but I tell you what, I certainly wouldn't wait for it. What do you mean, preacher? I, I know many people that says to me at times, I'm not ready to become a Christian yet. I don't want to be a hypocrite. Or I'm not ready to be a Christian yet because I haven't finished sowing all my wild oats. Or I'll become a Christian on my deathbed. You don't have that guarantee. None of us has that guarantee. When I think about this dying thief and what he requested from Jesus, it's important to remember because this thief, when he spoke to Jesus, he did not request that somebody get him down from the cross. He did not request of Jesus, when I die, can you provide for my family? Can you make provisions for my family? He didn't look into the eyes of Jesus and say, somehow can you relieve me of my pain? I heard in Days of yesterday, how you gave sight to the blind, how you let the lame walk, how you cleansed the lepers. There's some kind of way you can relieve me of my pain. That's not what he said. He did not ask for his crimes to be retried. All he asked of Jesus, he said, remember me. Take me with you when you die. This repentant thief could not look beyond the moment that he was in dire straits with, he could really say, at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart was rolled away.
it was there. By faith, I received my sight. Now, I want you to understand something, that it was no accident that Jesus was being crucified between two thieves. Please get this truth. In spite of everything that was happening to Jesus on this day, six illegal trials in the night, what they did to him and all of these illegal trials and the Via Della Rosa, the spitting, the scourging, the beatings, all of these things that had taken place, in spite of everything that was going on, we have to remember that while in heaven, God was on his throne presiding over every single event of the cross. Keep that in mind. From eternity past, God had decided when the crucifixion would take place. That was when Jesus was 33 and a half years old. God decided where the crucifixion would take place. And I gave you an illustration last Sunday and made a comment about how that Jesus was crucified outside of the gate. Contrary to what other denominations may believe, but I have a scripture for you and I want to give that for you today. It's Hebrews chapter 13 and verse number 12. Wherefore Jesus also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood suffered without the gate. They crucified him outside of the city walls, not inside of the city walls. So the church of the Holy Sepulchre cannot be the place where they crucified Jesus. According to the word. God had decided in heaven where he would be crucified, when he would be crucified. God had presided in heaven of how he would be crucified with intense suffering. Not only that, God had decided with whom he would be crucified between two thieves. So make no mistake about this. Nothing about the cross took God by surprise. When Pilate had turned Jesus over to the Jews and they placed him between two common criminals, they were putting into execution the eternal decree of God, which was fulfilling the prophetic word. This was exactly the way God wanted it. And as we have already mentioned, 750 years before Christ was born, the prophet Isaiah said this. Hold your place here, and I want you to find a passage in Isaiah 53, verse 12. They'll get it on the screen for you much quicker than you can turn. Read or find it with me. The Bible says this. Therefore, now again, this is a prophecy 750 years before Christ. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he had poured out his soul unto death, Look at this. He was numbered with the transgressors. 750 years before Jesus, Isaiah said he was going to be crucified between two thieves, between the transgressors, and bear the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Now again, Jesus being crucified between two thieves was not a coincidence. Somebody might ask this question. Well, pastor, why would God permit such a thing? I mean, the shame was enough. The suffering was enough. Why such disgrace? Why would God permit something like this? And I know there are many people in this world, lost and saved, who would question God every day. There are people that question God. Why is there so much crime in the world? Why is there so much hate in the world? Why is there so much violence in the world? Why is there so much hunger in the world? Why is there so much disease in the world? Why is there so much poverty in the world? Why are so many Christians being persecuted all over the world? Pastor, if God is a God of love, then why does he allow these terrible things to take place? The truth of the matter is this. It can be answered very simply. We will never get to the place where we understand God from a human perspective with our simple finite minds. Why did God choose the manger and not a palace? Why did God choose Judas Iscariot? Why did Jesus have to die on a cross between two thieves? 
The answer is scripturally simple. Isaiah chapter 55 and verse number 8, the word of God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. So here's the thing that we have to constantly remember. God never does anything without a reason. What's ever happening in your life, listen, it's not in vain. There's a purpose for it. There's a plan for it. We may not understand it right now, but as the old song says, we'll understand it better in the by and by. God never does anything without a reason, a purpose. He never acts arbitrarily. And we need to rest in the fact that God, no matter what is happening, he is always in control. Now, if I had to speculate a couple of reasons why, and this would only be speculation, why God allowed Jesus to be crucified between two common male factors, between two common thieves, perhaps it could have been for God to, number one, demonstrate the unfathomable depths of shame in which Jesus had to descend. I want you to think about it just for a moment. Because in his birth, he traded an ivory palace for a stable. He traded a throne for a manger. He, he, he traded the angels for shepherds. He traded the cherubims for his disciples. He traded now in his death. He's numbered now with the refuge and the scum of the earth. But when I look at this, this is a picture of him coming into the poverty of the human race. The apostle Paul said it so well in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse number 9. Notice what the word says here. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that through his poverty we might be rich. I don't know. Maybe perhaps God chose between two thieves to show us a picture of the position he was occupying as our substitute. Never forget this. Jesus was our vicarious substitute. That means this, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he was taking my place. He was taking your place. There's an old song that's been around forever. It said, I should have been crucified. I should have suffered and died. I should have hung on the cross in disgrace, but Jesus, God's son, took my place. Number three, perhaps, another reason, and I just speculate, maybe it was to show us that every man, no matter who he is, no matter what he has done, has an equal opportunity to be saved. The gospel is for everybody. For God so loved the world. That means every single one of us. But whatever the reason God chose to put Jesus between two thieves, here is the thing that I want you to remember that one of those thieves rejected him and one of them received him. Both of those thieves were equally near the Lord. Both of them saw him and heard him. Both of them were evil, wicked men. Both of them were thieves. Both of them were worthy of death. Both of them were suffering. Both of them were dying. And both of them urgently needed forgiveness and salvation. But here is the big difference. One man died in his sin and another man died with his faith in Christ. I wonder if we realize that this is the exact same thing going on in the world all around us today. People are in the same condition. They're in the same circumstance, having the same trouble. They're headed for the same devil's hell. Yet some of them come to church. Some people stand and sing songs. Some people hear the message. Some people have access to the same Holy Spirit that comes into our services or listening to us over by internet yet. I wonder how many people who are equally near the cross, I wonder how many people leave blind and lost on their way to hell while others leave forgiven and others leave saved. The undisputable truth in all of this is that both of these thieves had the same equal opportunity. 
And this is the same way today. Thank God the gospel's for all of us. The grace is free to all who will accept it. It doesn't cost money. It doesn't require work. There is no age limit. There is no waiting period. The gift of God, think about it. It's for all of us. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God. What was that? God so loved the world that he gave. What was the gift? That the gift of God, it was his only begotten son, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so a beautiful picture of God's amazing, abundant grace we see in the salvation of the dying thief is this. This thief turned to Jesus when it appeared that Jesus could not save himself much less anybody else. When it seemed that the Jews had prevailed in the crucifixion, this thief turned to Jesus when his disciples forsook him. This man turned to Jesus when public opinion was unanimously against him. I want you to understand something. The Bible does not record anybody standing at the foot of the cross. Now, John the Baptist did at the Jordan, but nobody was standing. The word doesn't record anybody standing at the foot of the cross saying, behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Nobody was doing that. Eventually, the Roman centurion did say, truly, this man is the Son of God. But when they were barbarically crucifying him, nobody was declaring him to be the savior of the world. Yet this thief looked beyond all doubt with unquestionable faith. And these are the five lessons I learned from the thief on the cross. Number one, he represents us as sinners. Many people have tried to portray this thief as a good thief or better thief. But here's something that I want you to remember, that prior to the time when he spoke these words to Jesus, he was same in heart as the one that was mocking Jesus. You say, is there a scripture for that? Yes, it is. I want you to see this in Matthew 27, verse number 38. The Bible says this, then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. And they that passed by reviled, wagging their heads and saying, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, also the chief priests mocking him, but the scribes and elders, he saved others himself. He cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. The thieves also which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. So before this particular thief had his eyes open to Jesus being the only begotten son of God, prior to his eyes being open, he was in the same mindset as this one who was mocking Jesus. The thieves also, both of them, two of them, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth, meaning that Every ounce of mockery that had been ushered into the face of Jesus on the cross, these other two were singing in perfect harmony with one another. It's a sad thing when men's eyes are closed to the truth. But listen carefully. For a period of time, these particular thieves who represented us as sinners as well. Look at this. No different than one was from the other. They both were cursing and blaspheming the Lord Jesus for a moment. The one who was converted, the one who was saved, he took part in the rejection. But slowly in this process, his eyes started to open. Listen. It's a sad truth when men's eyes are open to the truth. 
and people still reject the Lord. When their eyes are opened and they still reject the Lord, maybe you know somebody like that, I think it's a tragic thing to become aware of your spiritual needs and refuse to do anything about it. Number two, what I see here in this lesson from the thief on the cross is that man has to come to the end of his self before he can be saved. I've given this illustration many times. In the invitation, people, listen, you just don't walk down the aisle jiggling change in your pocket, pocket and popping bubbles with bubble gum and coming down here and filling out a car and paper. That's not, in, that's not how grace works. That's not how salvation works. People tell me from time to time, oh, yes, I'm saved. I had a lady one time a few years ago. I just couldn't get past what she was saying. Nothing reflected the wonderful work and grace of God in her heart. I said, tell me, how did you become Christian? How did you become a Christian? How did you become saved? She said, oh, I'll never forget the day. Pat Robinson told me to put my hand on the television, and I just had a wonderful warm feeling all over me. I said, is that your testimony? Are you telling me that's how you became a Christian born again in the faith? And she said, well, oh, yeah. And I said, ma'am, that's not salvation. You would be surprised. You think about this just for a moment. Man has to see himself as a sinner. He has to come to the end of himself before he can be saved. But seeing ourselves as a lost sinner, that's not enough. We have to see ourselves lost, but we have to acknowledge that we cannot save ourselves. That's imperative. And the repentant thief saw this. Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for us. That's what this thief saw. He saw that Christ was dying for him. And we all have to realize that there is absolutely nothing we can do to save ourselves. In Titus chapter 3, verse 5, the word says, Not of righteousness, uh, which we have done, not of works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. And so before... Anybody can be saved. We have to see ourselves as lost sinners, understand we cannot save ourselves, and we must realize that only Jesus can save us. And this is what the conversion of the thief shows us, that what he could not do to save himself. I mean, listen, let's think about it. This thief could not start reading his Bible. He was moments away from dying. He could not begin to walk the straight and narrow. Absolutely not. He couldn't start paying his tithe. Listen, he could not begin to turn over a new leaf. This man was dying. The thief could not do one thing to save himself. He realized that only Jesus was his possible hope. And so the Bible teaches us that without Christ, we're helpless and hopeless. Number three. And this is an important element of doctrine. You need to pay attention here. I don't know how many of you have come in contact with people over your Christian experience who believe that you have to be baptized to go to heaven. I want to share something very clear with you from the scriptures today. Number three, another lesson this thief teaches us is that we do not have to be baptized to go to heaven. In Luke chapter 23, verse number 43, let's look at that again. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Now, there are a few particular denominations that teach that you do. One of them is the church, uh, church of Christ, and they believe that you do have to be baptized to go to heaven. I'll never forget the day that I was talking to a, a young man who was actually a member of the Church of Christ, and he made an appointment. He knew my stand. He knew my position on this. He made an appointment to come into my office to purposely debate me on this subject. And when he came in here, you know, I could tell that he thought he was really fired up and really scholared on the subject. And he told me, he said, I know you believe and preach. He said, I've actually heard you preach that you do not have to be baptized to go to heaven. I said, that's what the Bible says. He said, oh, no, absolutely, that's not true. I said, well, sir, what is, what is the cornerstone of your belief? And this is what he said. He said, the thief on the cross that repented, listen, he, he didn't have to get baptized because he died under the law. 
And I sat there for a few minutes because I thought he was going to try to reason with me on that. But that's what all he said. He said, the thief died under the law. I said, the thief didn't die under the law. I said, number one. I said, number two, what's that got to do with anything? He said, no, the thief died under the law. I said, he did not. And then, well, then we go through the spirit. Yes, he did. No, he didn't. Yes, he did. No, he didn't. <laughs> he said, how do you know he didn't? I said, I can explain that real simple. I said, if you came in here to argue the Bible with me or debate the Bible with me, whether or not that thief died under the law, I said, you're in a heap of trouble. He said, if you got a, I said, oh, I got plenty for you. And I asked him to turn to this passage. In John chapter 19, I want you to see this. Because in verse number 31, I want you to see what these verses say, and I'm going to read down through verse number 33, John 19, 31 and 33. So if you are under the persuasion that the thief on the cross died under the law, let me give you some biblical correction this morning. Look at this. The Jews, therefore, because it was preparation that the, the bodies should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was a high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Okay, so here's the deal. Passover was just was imminent. And everybody, after they had done everything they could possibly do to Jesus, they were tired, they were worn out. They were pretty much done with this. The Passover was about to start. And they had to get this crucifixion over with because the, the law says you couldn't go through the crucifixion under the feast. So they were in a panic. They were saying, listen, these guys are still alive. After everything we've done to them, and so Pilate, they went to Pilate, and he said, break their legs. We need to break their legs. If we break their legs, because here's what was happening. When they were on the cross, they nailed their feet to the cross, hands to the cross, and they were bent like this, and this is what happened. Ever so often, they would push themselves up, grab a breath, and then they would fall back down. And then they would quiver enough strength, and breathe again, and then they fall back down. The art to this and speeding it up was if we break their legs, they're no longer able to quiver themselves up and to take another breath, so they would suffocate. So these thieves, they were still alive, and so they said, Pilate, they are still alive. They besought Pilate that they, their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first one and the other which was crucified with him. Keep this in mind. These thieves did not die before Jesus. And that was the basis of the whole argument with this young man. Notice this. They broke the legs of the first one they broke the legs to the second one, verse 33. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they break not his legs. And that was a fulfillment of Bible prophecy, by the way, that not a bone in his body would be broken. However, when Jesus died on the cross, when he died on the cross, that's when grace was imparted to you and I. So these thieves died. You think about this now. Jesus died before them, which means they were under grace. When they got to Jesus, he was already dead. But they first broke those legs. So I told that young man looking in my office, they broke the legs of the thief. I said, listen, Jesus, th these boys didn't die under the law. And I said, but if, even if you, if I agree with you just for a moment, which I don't, don't misconstrue what I'm saying. I don't agree with an ounce of what you're talking about. I said, but what does that have to do with anything? So here's the point. You do not have to be baptized to go to heaven. Jesus said this day, number four, quickly. 
I want to give you the explanation of paradise. This is going to take me a few more minutes. Stick with me. I want to say a couple of things about this. Paradise, where is it? Where was it? And where is it right now? I want you to see this in John 21, verse 25. I'm going to explain something to you. What did Jesus do three days in the tomb? All right. And there are also, John 21, verse 25, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which if they should be written, everyone, I suppose, that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. That means this, that there are many things according to the scripture that we simply do not know. I can't figure it out for you because we don't know it. The Bible says that there were so many things that Jesus did that the volumes of the books of the world couldn't contain them. We have 66 books that's called the Bible. In the Old Testament, there are some things that I don't even understand, but in the New Testament, the Bible says that Jesus didn't. He only walked the earth three and a half years in the public ministry few things we know about him in his birth and when he was two years old and at the time he was 12, but that's it. So many things he did, I have no absolute idea, but I want to share with you now with some clarity and with some speculation what we know about paradise because Jesus said to the thief, this day thou shalt be with me in paradise. What we know about paradise is that the other name for this place before the cross, keep in mind, before the cross, it was called Abraham's bosom. And when Jesus died on the cross, I believe the first thing that he did when he bowed his head and gave up the ghost, Jesus cried with a loud voice, it is finished. And he cried with a loud voice, Father, into thy hands I re uh, receive my spirit. And the Bible says he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. When he gave up the ghost, this is what I, because he was on the cross, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate and said, can we take him down, bury him? Pilate said, yes. Where did he go? What happened to Jesus? They have his body on the cross. They're wrapping him with a hundred pounds of myrrh and a log, getting him ready for the burial. They're getting ready to put him in a borrowed tomb. So where did his spirit go for these three days? What did he do? I believe the first thing that he did was to present the sacrificial blood that he had just shed on the mercy seat of heaven. This is why I believe that in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12. And then I'm going to read for you verses 22 through 26. The scriptures are here on the screen. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered into or in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. All right. Having entered in into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood and without shedding of blood is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves which better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us nor yet that he should offer himself often. That means you don't have to be saved often. He doesn't have to shed his blood every time we turn around. He already did it. As the high priest entered into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So here's what I believe Jesus did when he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. The first thing he did was in spirit because his body was being taken down from the cross. His spirit ascended to the father where he placed the shed blood on the mercy seat. That is imperative for what I'm about to tell you next. After he did that in spirit, he descended into the lower parts of the earth. Ephesians 4, verses 9 and 10. Now that he ascended, 
What is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above heavens that he might fulfill all things. So listen carefully. This is where paradise was before the cross. It was in the lower part of the earth. Before the cross, paradise and heaven were not the same place. Jesus didn't say to the thief on the cross, this day thou shalt be with me in heaven. That's not what he said. He said, this day thou shalt be with me in paradise. Before the cross, they were two separate places. When Jesus died, his body was in the grave for three days. His spirit Listen now, he presents the blood to God the Father on the mercy seat. He has to do that for a very clear reason. He descended into Hades, which by the way was divided into two parts, the torment side and the comforting side. In Luke 16, verse 19, the Bible says, There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, he lift up his eyes being in torments and seeth Abraham afar off. So listen now, the place was divided. The rich man could see Abraham. Abraham could see the rich man, but there was a great gulf dividing them. They couldn't go back and forth to each other. And in hell, verse 23, he lift up his eyes being in torments, seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. He's speaking now to Abraham from one side of the, the gulf fixed. He cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm tormented in this flame. But Abraham said back to him, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receiveth thy good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted. And thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fix, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. We cannot travel back and forth. So here's the thing. The unrighteous, when they died, they went to the tormenting side, the place where the rich man was. Those counted as righteous in the eyes of God went to the comforting side of paradise, which was Abraham's bosom. And this is very important because what they were in Abraham's bosom for, they were waiting for the blood to be shed. They were waiting for the atonement to be made. They were waiting for the pardon to be made. The only pardon is the blood. These people in Abraham's bosom could not go to heaven without the blood any more than I can go to heaven without the blood. They died in faith being counted as righteous. They went to this place called Abraham's bosom. They waited and waited and waited for the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. They were waiting and waiting for the debt to be paid, for the blood to be shed. Without the blood on the mercy seat, they could not go to heaven where God was any more than we can do that now. In order to get to heaven, we have to be covered by the blood. When Jesus died, listen, he shed his blood. Then he had to give it to the Father. He had to present it on the mercy seat. So first he put the blood on the mercy seat. Then Jesus went to the comforting side of Hades, paradise, to reveal to those who, who died in righteousness that the payment had been made. Now you think about this just for a moment. He descended and he went to Abraham's bosom and he said, hey, I've got a very important announcement to make. Now keep in mind, because people could hear what was on this side and that side and people could talk from here to there. They just couldn't go back and forth. Jesus is now standing on the comforting side of paradise and he's saying, hey, I've just paid the debt. I've just, 
uh, gave God the blood. The blood is on the mercy seat. The pardon has, now think about those on the tormenting side. Listening to Jesus give this wonderful news of announcement that the debt has been paid. He told them that Satan, hell, death, and the grave had been defeated. Jesus said, hey, I am here to set you free. And at that time, paradise emptied itself and hell enlarged itself. Isaiah chapter 5, verse number 14 says this, Therefore hell hath enlarged herself and opened her mouth without measure and their glory and their multitude and their pomp and he that rejoiceth shall descend into it. Now, here's the next thing. When Jesus presented, this is all going on in three days. He presents the blood on the mercy seat. He descends to the lower parts of the earth to the comforting side of Abraham's bosom, paradise, and he is making this announcement. The blood is on the mercy seat. The Bible says, then what he did, he let captive captivity. Look at this in, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 8. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. And so I believe that he delivered the multitudes safe within the Father's reach. Now I want to explain this. His spirit returned to the tomb. Again, follow me now. He dies on the cross. He sheds his blood. He gives up the ghost. He puts the blood on the mercy seat because these people in Abraham's bosom cannot get to heaven without the blood. Okay, he presents the blood to the mercy seat. He goes to the comforting side of Abraham's bosom, Hades. He makes the announcements. The debt has been paid. The blood has been shed. And then he leads them who have been technically held captive, waiting for the debt to be paid for all of these years. He leads them to the Father, most of them. I'll show you here in just a minute. Not all of them, but most of them. And then what he does, his spirit returns back to the tomb. And there's a significant reason for that. So the Father could gloriously, bodily raise him from the dead. That God could do that. In Acts chapter 10, verse 40, the Bible says, Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly. And so when God raised him from the dead, here's the important thing. Many of the righteous who were in paradise, Jesus took to the Father's side, but there were some who did not go to heaven at that point. In fact, the word says that when Jesus came out of the grave, many other graves were opened up as well. In fact, the scriptures in Matthew 27, verse 51, and behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom and the earth did quake and the rocks rent and the graves were opened and many bodies, look at this, of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. And so what happened is the next thing, he came out of the grave. Others came out of their grave. And then he has this conversation with Mary. In John 20, 17, Jesus saith unto her, touch me not for I'm not yet ascended to my father, but I go. But, but look what he says, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my father and your father and to my God and your God. But I want you to understand something. Notice this word, touch me not. I want you to focus on this word, touch me just for a minute because it's, it's a Greek word. And I've asked them to put this Greek word for you on the screen. Haptoma, this is a Greek word. And that word translated means touch. All right. It also means linger. So here's what I want you to understand. When Jesus is having this conversation to Mary or with Mary, it wasn't just about a physical touch. It was about and more about lingering, staying. Because you know when people got around Jesus, how they would embrace him that sometimes they would wash his feet. Sometimes they would touch the hem of his garment. Sometimes they wouldn't want him to leave. 
Jesus said, Mary, touch me not. Don't stay. Don't linger. You've got a mission to do. You've got to go tell the others. Because as you remember, Jesus did give Thomas an invitation to touch him, physically touch him. Jesus wanted Mary to know that she couldn't stay. She had to go tell others that he was risen. Now, paradise. Listen, when Jesus led those who were in Abraham's bosom to the Father, this is what happened. He led them to heaven. When this part was emptied, this part of paradise Hades, Abraham's bosom was emptied. The Bible says then all of a sudden, hell enlarged itself. So there was no longer a comforting side to this. There was no longer a place called Abraham's bosom. Now, after the cross, after the resurrection, paradise became heaven. But before the cross, it was Abraham's bosom. After the cross... It's now one. When Jesus died on the cross, he descended to the lower parts where Abraham's bosom was. But after the cross, he ascended to paradise. And let me show you this in the scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse, 20, verse 2 and 4. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years, whether in body I cannot tell or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God know it. Such a one caught up, up, up to the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell God knoweth, how he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words which is not lawful for a man to utter. Thank God. I want our musicians to come forward. I want to speed this up, quickly get to point number five. I'm going to skip a lot this morning because I know this was a lengthy sermon. But the last point in your bulletin is this. One of the greatest lessons that the thief on the cross teaches us is that it's never too late to be saved. Never. One thing for sure, God has given all who are not saved another opportunity to be saved today. The scripture says, and I close with this verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, for he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I secured thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And so the truth of the matter is this. People who have heard this message today have been equally near the cross, have been equally near Jesus. The sad thing is some will receive and some will reject. No, you don't have to be baptized to go to heaven, but you have to know Jesus to go to heaven. You have to be saved. You listen to Pastor Tony Cahoot. For more information, Visit our website at BufordRoadBaptistChurch.com.